Our scripture reading today comes from Revelation 6, 1 through 11. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the li third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Nasser is a young man in Evan prison who has been in prison since January 20th of 2018 for, and I quote, acting against the national security through the establishment of house churches. Majid Reza, another young Christian convert, has been in Evan prison since November 17th, 2017 for, and I quote, membership of an evangelical group conducting evangelism. And Fatima, a woman in Evan prison since August 31st, 2019, along with her friend Saheb, at their appeal hearing in January 2019, the two converts were asked to renounce their faith and they refused. If you haven't put it together yet, these are Iranian Christians, some of whom are a part of the network of house churches that we support through Elam, our ministry partner, who are currently in prison in Iran for sharing their faith. And that is, of course, just a snapshot of, what, of the global Christian community and the persecution that they face around the world today. And that even is just a snapshot of what's happening, uh, what has happened throughout church history for thousands of years since the first church was planted in the book of Acts chapter 2 in the New Testament. So we're in a series, uh, if you're joining us for the first time, on the book of Revelation. We've called it Everything Sad Untrue because we know at the end of history, Jesus will make everything sad untrue. He will set all things aright again. But how, what do we do now? That's my question today. What do we do with this kind of sadness and hardship and pain now? And not just the outright persecution of the global church, but even just our own sadness, our pain and our suffering as believers, when it seems like the sadness is winning, how do we endure the sadness? 
in this time between. And the more I read the book of Revelation, the more I think it was written to answer that very question. And as we enter a new section of the book, we're starting here in Revelation chapter 6, I believe we get the beginning of an answer. So turn to Revelation chapter 6 and uh, let's dive in. Now let me give you a fair warning here. This is the part of the book that gets really strange for modern readers. Yes, even stranger than what we've just talked about the last couple of weeks. Okay, so I'm gonna, we'll tread lightly here together. If we're gonna endure the sadness, we need to see at least three things together today. Okay, the first is we need to see how to read this part of the book. It's, it's confusing. We need to read, we need to see how, how to read it. Then we need to see how God works through us in this part of history. What is his strategy here? What's going on? And finally, we need to see how do we participate with God in that strategy? How do we do this together? Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about. So first, how do, uh, we need to know how to read this part of the book. So let's take a look at chapter 6. And as we do so, just again, two quick notes from me. First, I'm going to be in teacher mode here a little bit, probably more than I normally would do on, uh, for a sermon. But I think it's really critical to see even just a little bit how John has arranged this book. I think it's critical for our faith and our endurance, uh, but it is not straightforward. So we need to take our time with that a little bit. And second, let's just stay humble here, okay? So I feel confident in the big picture ideas that we're going to talk about today, but there's a lot of disagreement on the details of this book, how to apply them, how to interpret them, and that's totally fine. But let's just stay humble in our own views and interpretations as we, as we do this together, okay? Deal? Deal. So if you remember, uh, when we last left the book of Revelation, John, who's the author of the book, um, who's caught up in the heavenly throne room, Pastor Tom talked about that, has just seen the Lamb of God, Jesus, take the scroll from God the Almighty, and he's beginning to open the scroll. Now the scroll, if you remember, you could describe it a lot of different ways, but essentially it represents God's unfolding plan in human history to bring all things under his reign and his dominion and to usher in a new age of the new creation that is no longer plagued by sin and death to make everything sad untrue. That's what this scroll represents. And only Jesus, the slain lamb, is worthy to carry out that plan. That was the main focus of chapters 4 and 5. In chapter 6, verse 1, that same lamb, Jesus, begins to open the seven seals on the scroll. So if you've ever seen an old-fashioned letter with a little wax stamp on it, it's a seal. There's seven seals on the scroll, and he begins to open them one at a time. And every seal that opens brings some new vision or catastrophe on the earth. It's like the worst game of jack-in-the-box ever. It's like just one surprise after another. The first four seals are the infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse. You've probably heard that before. It's one of the most enduring images from the book of Revelation. And they represent basically the worst things that can happen in human history. So war, conquest, pestilence, famine, plague, death, you know, normal stuff. (laughs) They are released on earth and are given authority to wipe out a fourth of the earth. That's verse 8. The fifth seal, so that's the first four. The fifth seal takes John's vision now from earth back up to heaven 
And there's a bit of an interlude here. And I'm going to read the whole section here because I think it's critical to this section of the book. So this is now in verse 9. This is John writing. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So John sees all who have died for their faith in Jesus. That's the image. Pleading with God, the judge, to end the sadness, to judge the world. Stop this. And God says, not yet. He comforts them with white robes and rest. He assures them that their victory is sure, but that the end has not yet come and that more suffering is coming. And I want you to remember that, okay? So the lamb then opens the sixth seal and the heavens are basically completely undone. So the sun goes dark, the moon turns to blood, the stars fall from the sky. All of this is imagery from the Old Testament about the day of the Lord when the earth is prepared for the final judgment. Okay, the, the final judgment is an Old Testament and a New Testament idea. In the Old Testament, it's often referred to as the day of the Lord. And all of this imagery John is, is drawing from the Old Testament. And the peoples of the earth hide because they know that this judgment is coming and they can't stand it. Then in chapter 7, so that's the end of chapter 6. In chapter 7, there's four angels at the corners of the earth ready to unleash. They have authority to harm the earth and release God's wrath and judgment. But another angel stops them, and he says in verse 3, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And then notice with me here, John hears the number sealed, 144,000, from the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe. Now, numbers, as is frequent in the apocalypse of John, serve a symbolic function. So 12 here being the number of completeness and 144,000 being a factor of 12. But in verse 9, John looks, so he hears the number sealed, 12 tribes of Israel, but then he looks and he sees that the 144,000 are not literal Jews from the tribes of Israel, but a great multitude from every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping the Lamb together. Now, this is a very common feature in John's apocalypse. He will hear something. And when, what he hears is often related to an Old Testament prophecy or promise. And then he will look and see something often related to a surprising New Testament fulfillment of that promise. So here, for example, God, if you remember, promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, to multiply his children into a mighty nation. And now we see that is fulfilled not just physically. Okay, Abraham does, uh, he is the, uh, the forefather of Israel, but it's fulfilled now spiritually. So Abraham's family now of faith is from every part of the world, every nation, not just Israel. Then the final seal is opened in chapter 8, verse 1, and heaven is silent for 30 minutes. So something really, really big is about to happen. There are now seven angels in the throne room, and each are handed a trumpet. So hold that thought. 
Then John sees another angel attending to a golden altar. Okay? Now this is reminiscent of the earthly temple in Jerusalem where there was an altar filled with incense burning as a representation of the prayers of God's people rising to him. So now John sees an altar in the heavenly throne room. It is filled with incense that is always burning. But here, the literal prayers of God's people are in the altar is what John sees, and they rise to God, and it moves him to action. Now, this is a really powerful scene because literally what John pictures here, what he sees are all of the prayers of God's people for all time before him, asking for him to make the world right, to judge evil, to save his people, all in one moment. And the angel adds fire to this altar and the prayers of God's people. And then he takes the altar and he pours that back out on the world in judgment. And this, if I'm reading it correctly, starts the final judgment that this apocalypse of John is ultimately about in later chapters. But instead of going into detail about that final judgment, John's vision shifts again. And he goes back to the seven angels that were holding seven trumpets. And just like the seven seals, each trumpet will now unleash a new series of judgments on the earth, basically through chapter 15. And then a series of seven bulls will appear these represent God's wrath, starting in chapter 16, and we'll go through another cycle of seven. So we're going to cover those sections later in our series, but I want you to see that we've covered now the first section of sevens, the seals, and there are two more yet to come. There is a lot of debate about how these three series of seven relate to each other. I tend to agree with Grant Osborne, who wrote a commentary on Revelation, and he was actually a professor of mine at Trinity Seminary, that these three series of seven all describe the same period of time, basically the time between Jesus's ascension and where he starts the church and his return, where he redeems the church fully. So we, we call this the church age, that each of these sevens represents the church age in a kind of a different, from kind of a different angle. And each of them ends with the same picture of the final judgment to come, which Revelation describes in more detail later in the book. So rather than looking at these three sevens as a progression through time, like first there's the seals, and then there's the trumpets, and then there's the bowls, it's better to think of them as one theme of music that the composer keeps returning to. So the composer goes back to the same theme throughout the whole piece, with variations and changes. I think that is the best way to see what John is doing here. Each of the sevens also remind the reader, notice this, of the imagery of Genesis chapter one. God created the world in seven days. The world was made in seven days. As I said, the first three, if you remember, are about the heavens. So God separates the realms and then he puts lights in the heavens, right? And the final four are more focused on the earth. The land and the sea are separated, animals, plants, humans, and then, of course, the seventh day is rest. God's wrath and revelation works in the opposite direction. He releases the four horsemen on the earth and then rolls back the sky, shuts out the sun. He's undoing creation is the image here. He's moving backwards from Genesis 1, which is, again, a very common theme in the Old Testament prophets when they talk about the day of the Lord. It's the undoing of God's creation in Genesis 1. Okay, that was a lot. 
I'm tired. <laughs> and uh, we really didn't cover the half of this. So what I want to encourage you to do is this week, go back and read this section a couple of times and see John's imagery and see what you see and feel because I, I really haven't covered the half of it. But I feel like we need a little break. So let's just take a minute. Uh, I'm just going to go like stretch and just refresh. Okay, be back in a second. Oh, man. Yep. That felt good. Ugh. All right. I know we covered a ton. And if you need to rewind and get a refresher before we keep going, feel free. That's the beauty of this format. There will be a quiz later. I'm just kidding. So I've hopefully given you now just a couple of tools to help you read and understand this part of the book. And we're going to do that throughout the series because reading this book well is a primary goal. Okay, Even if that's all we do, we know how to read this book well, that's great. But how do we interpret it? How, do, how does it help us endure the sadness? I'm glad you asked, because that's really our next point. So we, we do need to know how to read this, but also by learning how to read it, we begin to see how God is working in this time between. And then we aren't surprised by it. So we need to expect how God works through us, is our, really our next section. And as you study the patterns of this book and this section, um, you begin to see a bit of God's strategy for the world before Jesus' return. And the first part of that strategy is judgment. Okay, you can't miss it. God allows judgment. When you read about the seven seals, as we just did, it's hard to miss that God is allowing judgment because of sin. The four horsemen, for example, war and conflict, are caused by pride and xenophobia and greed and all kinds of sinful reasons that are all the direct result of humanity's rebellion against God and our idolatry. That's how John sees it. We are our own worst enemy. And the evil one, Satan, who isn't named here in Revelation, but he will be later on, uses our sin and death and idolatry and all the evil in the world to make things even worse. We invited sin and death into the world and God's judgment essentially allows the consequences of those choices to play out. So things like war and plague and food shortages and cancer and death and disease and earthquakes, all of this horrible stuff that is a part of our everyday lives are vivid reminders to the world, if we pay attention, that the world is broken and it's not how it's supposed to be. These are consequences of humanity's rebellion against God. This is the biblical worldview about our present reality. Now, that doesn't mean that being sick is God's specific judgment on you. So don't hear me saying that. But it is a reminder that we broke the world, and until God fixes it, we are in a broken reality. God allows judgment in the world. That's a part of his strategy right now. But he does it for a reason. The judgment is meant to bring the world to repentance. Before the final judgment, God wants as many people as possible to turn to him, to cry out for help. And the judgment is meant to get their attention, in part. But the world, of course, rarely listens to God. And a theme emerges in these cycles of seven, in fact, that is very reminiscent of the story of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. So if you remember there, God sends these 10 plagues against the Egyptian people. And notice, by the way, they are very reminiscent of the seven days of creation as well, the undoing of creation. 
God sends these judgments to get Pharaoh's attention, to repent. And he just keeps doing the same thing over and over again. He, he refuses to listen. You see this in the sixth seal, where humanity hides from God's final judgment. They say, who can, who can bear this? But they don't repent. The sixth trumpet, you see it, where they keep on worshiping demons and idols, despite what God is doing. And when you get to the bulls, this becomes really explicit because it really becomes a new Exodus theme. And over and over, the world refuses to repent in the midst of God's wrath. It's said three or four times, they refuse to repent. They refuse to repent. God's trying to wake up the world, but people will still ignore him in the midst of that. So those are two critical parts of God's strategy here. The judgment is meant to bring the world to repentance. But most importantly for the church, there's a, there's a third piece to this. God allows the persecution of his people. He allows the persecution of his people. This is a main theme throughout the whole book of Revelation. And this section is no different. And I think one of the most striking images here, uh, the fifth seal, when John sees the martyred saints, the, the, the executed for their faith, in the throne room, asking God to bring the final judgment and to end this cycle of wrath and judgment and repentance and church suffering. And God says, no, no. Like more suffering is coming. That's what that section says. And this has been the pattern of the world ever since the church began. Remember, this book of Revelation, especially this section, is not simply about what will happen. Many of us approach the book of Revelation thinking it's all about what will happen. I think more than anything, it is about what will happen, but more than it's about what is happening now. God is still working to bring the nations to repentance. And the church all over the world is suffering for their faith and their allegiance to Jesus. And yes, it will end, but we're in the sadness part of the story and we have a role to play there. So we should expect God to work this way. That's part of what John's vision is helping the early church to do is to recognize this pattern. And he's showing us the same thing. Really to get to our last point, to see how do we participate with God in this time. If we're going to endure the sadness, we need to see how we participate with God in this. And this is going to sound really, really stark, but it's true. There are two primary images of what the church is doing in this section of Revelation, okay? The church is called to suffer and to pray. This, this is what you see the church doing here in Revelation. Now, the church, the mission of the church is multifaceted. It's bigger than those two ideas. And we talk a lot about that as a church, and we will later in this series, and we will in other series to come. We believe we're supposed to be on mission, serving in our community, working for justice, integrating our, our faith and our vocation, our stage of life. But John's concern here is with these two things, suffering and prayer. And so I, I want to take time on those. So first, we participate with God by suffering well. Now, nobody wants to hear that. I don't want to hear that. And frankly, we shouldn't be surprised by that, though, because Jesus consistently warns anyone who would follow him that to follow him means to pick up your cross, carry it, follow him to crucifixion. Over and over again, Jesus warns, this is what it means to follow me. The apostles in the New Testament, like Peter in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, says that Christ's suffering on the cross is an example for us to follow in our allegiance to him. Now, John takes all of these themes, which are all over the New Testament, in his vision, he puts it this way. 
So remember with me, in chapter 4, John hears about the Lion of Judah. An angel says, Behold, the Lion of Judah. The promised Messiah, this is an Old Testament image, who will judge the nations and establish God's rule and end all evil and injustice to bring the whole world under the reign of God. But John turns and sees what? He sees a slain lamb. The slain lamb conquers the world in his suffering. This is the image John wants you to cling to. Just as Jesus' suffering and death brings repentance and builds the church, right? Christians are people who look at the slain lamb and say, I did that. That was done for my forgiveness. I must repent and follow him. Just as Jesus' suffering and death produces repentance and builds the church, so now the church's suffering and our death brings repentance and builds the church. We now are the representation of the slain lamb in the world. We follow Jesus in his pattern of suffering, death, resurrection, and glory. This is our destiny now too, as a means to bring people who are far off near to God again. That is our role. Our king is a bloody lamb. Don't forget that image. It's one of the most important images John gives us in Revelation. That is our call, to follow him until he is ready to make the world right and to make the sadness untrue. We do not bring Jesus' kingdom reality to bear on the world through power, through domination, or through conquest. Those are tools of the world. We do it through the surprising, shocking tools of Jesus' kingdom, which are suffering, submission, and death. Those are the tools of the slain lamb. Not forever, but for now. Now, we have our own suffering that we're called to, and I want to take that seriously. We've all suffered loss. We've suffered injustice. We suffered hurts and pains from the world, and suffering well is a part of our call. But as we've said before, many around the world are suffering to the point of real persecution and death, which is different than our experience. We should identify with and support these believers as a part of how we participate in the suffering of the global Christian community. If our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus, then our ultimate community is the suffering church all over the world. More than our own national identities, we should relate to and care about and suffer with our brothers and sisters in our faith community and all over the world, brothers and sisters from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That is our ultimate destiny. And again, you can't miss that here in this section. And one of the primary ways we identify with and support the suffering church is through prayer. The church is called to pray. You can't read this part of Revelation and miss that the primary response of the church to suffering is prayer. The martyrs pray to bring to God to bring the final judgment and set the world right in chapter 5. The prayers of the church rise to God and move Him to action in chapter 8. It's right there in your face. We should pray as a part of our mission to the world in the present age. We should pray for the persecuted church, for strength and endurance as they suffer for Christ. We should pray for our church, 
for Christ's community, that we would be a faithful witness to our culture and our service and our submission to Jesus, and yes, and our suffering. And fundamentally, and I confess, I forget this sometimes, we are called to pray for Jesus to return, to bring his kingdom into the world, to end the sadness and the darkness. This whole book of Revelation ends with a prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. This is how John finishes the book. That is our call as well. Because yes, God hears us. Our prayers are like incense. They rise to him. He sees our suffering. He knows it intimately. He entered into it in his son, Jesus. And our prayers move him. They're part of his will for this time between and how we endure the sadness. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to pray together as we close. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Put whatever's in your hands, put it down. Your device, Bible, notes, pen and paper, whatever it is, put it down. Close your eyes and let's lift our prayers from all over our city right now to the God who hears us. Let's pray. Father, we want to lift up our persecuted brothers and sisters all over the world. Give them endurance, give them strength, faithfulness to proclaim your gospel truth even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances we can possibly imagine. Lord, bring them to mind for us throughout the week, throughout our days, to be praying for them, lifting them up to you. Protect them from the evil one. And Father, we pray for our church. Make us a faithful lampstand and witness to our community in the truth that we speak, in the work that we do, in the relationships that we foster, and yes, in the suffering and the injustice that we experience. May we point to the slain lamb in everything that we do. And Father, we ask, let your kingdom come. We ask that you end the sadness. Lord, we trust that you know what you're doing. And yet we ask boldly, come Lord Jesus, set the world aright, end suffering and death, and bring in your new era, your new creation, for which every human heart longs. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.